ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald and thanks for joining me for the program on this quite wet Thursday. If it is raining at your place, please do let us know. Send in your rain reports on 0487 991057. If it's raining right now or if you got a good drop last night, send it on through on the program today. An ongoing industrial dispute in some of the nation's busiest ports is causing all sorts of disruptions around Australia. They had 51,000 containers stranded around the country at their four container ports in in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. And um, the congestion that it's causing there is now having a whole lot of knock-on effects. Yeah, there's calls for the federal government to step in and resolve things at these ports. We'll talk more about that soon. And you'll also today find out why German farmers are driving their tractors into the middle of Berlin. And, of course, we'll also get an update on the weather from the Weather Bureau at five past one, the latest on that monsoon and the potential development of a tropical low. There's plenty going on in the weather this week. Um, that's all up on the Country Hour today. Well, the NT government is reforming biosecurity and trespass laws relating to livestock producers. Some of the proposed changes involve the introduction of penalties for those who breach a property's biosecurity plan and giving police officers the same powers as a livestock inspector in the event of an emergency animal disease program. I spoke earlier with the NT's Chief Vet Rob Williams to hear more about the changes that have been put forward. What these amendments do with the Livestock Act, which um, you know is fit for purpose, but obviously it's uh, 14 years old now, um, particularly with the current threats that we've seen on our doorstep with foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease, uh, there was a, seemed to be a need to, to update some of our powers so that we could have much more flexible arrangements um, if an emergency animal disease is declared in the Northern Territory. One of the changes proposed is that biosecurity management plans that a cattle station for, say, might set up on their property, it'll enable that to be legislated and, and put in the law. What does that mean, Rob? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, what that means is that uh, uh, previously we've asked properties to have biosecurity management plans in place uh, you know, as a sort of good practice measure, but we've had no legislative sort of enforcement of that should there be non-compliance with the biosecurity management plan. So there's a couple of things there. Firstly, these biosecurity management plans that we're um, suggesting industry uh, put in place, which most of the cattle stations have in place anyway, um, are voluntary. Uh, They're industry owned, so um, they're not mandated by government or they're not um, uh, dictated how they should be uh, by government. But what they are is a tool to be able to manage, particularly visitors, entering and exiting properties. So the, the, the idea is that the biosecurity management plans do not stop people who have a statutory right to enter a property or are invited onto the property, but what they require is some basic measures that um, the people should follow. So that, that's sort of a principle of like come clean, go clean. So if you enter a property, 
you should um, you know make every effort to obviously uh, have clean vehicles, uh, clean boots, particularly if you're coming into contact with livestock. Um, and so they're just the uh, I guess it's just a, a, the the basics of of what we have already asked properties to put in place. But now what we're doing is is enable um, under the legislation if there is a non-compliance, it enables us to actually issue an infringement notice. So if we have evidence, for example, of someone who's entered a property and left a load of rubbish on the property uh, and uh, have not complied with the basic sort of come clean, go clean principles at property, we're now able to uh, issue an infringement notice. That, so there uh, could be a penalty. Person. There is a penalty, yeah. So the, um, the the infringement notices for individuals start at three penalty units without sort of getting two sort of, which is I think it's about $580 at the moment, all the way through to 10 penalty units, which is around the $1,700 mark. So yes, I mean, the short answer is that uh, previously we weren't able to issue penalty notices to people who were not compliant with, uh, with the biosecurity requirements, but now we are able to do that. And is this something industry has been calling for? Uh, yes, yeah, so industry has, um, and we've got a lot of strong support, particularly from NT Cattlemen's Association and the uh, NT Livestock Exporters Association. So we, we have had requ requests from industry to make sure that um, there is um, some teeth to our legislative framework around, uh, particularly um, the entry and exit of, of what I'll say is um, visitors who ha who are not known to the property owner. So the 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 critical thing has been that um, there are people who have uh, statutory right of access to pastoral leases, which is fine. People and like native title holders, they're allowed to go onto the properties. Exactly right, native title holders, emergency services, uh, uh, power and water, you know, um, even recreational fishers and and mineral. Uh, Titles uh, Act also allows for obviously exploration. So that, those um, those legitimate um, uh, people or companies that have access to a property, we're, we're not stopping that at all. That's not uh, that's not the intention. The intention is to um, make sure that if they do enter onto properties, that they they comply with some basic biosecurity measures. One of the other proposed changes is that an owner of livestock must provide 14 days notice before going onto a neighbouring property to retrieve any stray livestock that have gone across the fence. That's a change from the current two days. Why has that been put in place? Yeah, so it's a good question. Again, it's it's one of those areas that's... Um, it can be quite contentious. So, um, in the in the normal course of business, ninety nine point nine percent of the times, we hope that neighbours are able to sort out their differences without going to legislation. So, if they're, um, for example, uh, someone who owns livestock and they enter onto uh, someone else's land, those that that owner of the cattle does have, or owner of any livestock, uh, but particularly the cattle has the right to go and retrieve those livestock. So uh, currently it's a fairly, uh, under the legislation, it's a fairly sort of informal arrangement. It's two days and only requires verbal notification. Um, what we're hoping is that uh, most of the time that that will be sorted out without legislation, that you don't need to uh, go into legislation. Now, where it becomes contentious, particularly on third-party land, um, where there needs to be a more formal arrangement, what has happened in the past is that um, uh, it's been very, um, it's not been very clear to people uh, how they should go about it. So 
what we've done with the legislation and it's in response to uh, multiple stakeholders uh, requests what we've done is um, tried to um, tidy it up and make it very black and white if you like so you've got to make the effort to contact your neighbor you must give them 14 days notice in writing and but you still have the right to enter the land after 14 days um, but uh, we're just trying to make sure that it's nice and tidy and it's more for those cases that become contentious it's more in the area particularly where there's multiple parties involved and where if you like there needs to be some kind of agreement so we've encouraged people that um, where there have been disputes um, that uh, that you do seek either some kind of legal advice or go through like the community justice center uh to um to try and get some kind of written agreement in place so all the all this legislative change does is is um sort of tidy that up that area and make it that you know basically it's got to be a written you know you've got to do it in writing you've got to give 14 days notice um it's not the best outcome necessarily for all parties involved but it's a it's a practical pragmatic sort of outcome to try and uh, ward off sort of the, the the contentious more dispute type issues that we uh, that we sometimes have unfortunately now these are all proposed changes rob um, there's more details on the nt government's have your say website public consultation it actually closes tomorrow afternoon at 5 p.m what do you want from people and what happens next after this, Rob? Yeah, so we, we would like as, as much uh, feedback as possible, though I will say we have undertaken an extensive uh, consultation campaign. So we have um, had multiple engagements with land councils, with obviously industry bodies, um, with uh, bushfire and emergency services, power and water. We have had extensive engagement, but we're just trying to make sure that everybody has the you know their say um so that we yeah we basically encourage any submission uh, and even though there's a hard deadline for the 12th of january um because of uh we we're sort of up against it in terms of the time frame for the for um the legislative assembly sittings so we're trying to get this through so that it's um basically ratified in the first quarter of this year um but um we, we yeah we've been We've been very open and and really wanting as many submissions as possible. Rob Williams, he is the NT's Chief Veterinary Officer, speaking there about some proposed changes to the NT's Livestock Act. Hasn't been updated since 2008. And, yes, yeah, some of the, I guess, the largest sort of changes being proposed there is about legislating biosecurity plans. So if someone unauthorised comes onto a property and breaches biosecurity protocols, a penalty could be imposed on that person. Uh, there's some powers to police officers in the event of an emergency animal disease program and the introduction of a mandatory 14-day notice requirement before an owner of livestock can go on to their neighbour's place to retrie- retrieve stray livestock, which might have gone over the fence. Uh, that won't be an absolute requirement. Um, Rob Williams told me if you've got a good relationship with your neighbour, you're able to just call them up and say, hey, I think some of my cows are across the fence. And if they say, OK, you can go for it. Um, but yeah, there are some of the proposed changes. Uh, submissions on this draft bill, they uh, close 5pm tomorrow. If you want to read more on it, just uh, go on the internet and search for Have Your Say 
NT, and you can follow the links there through to the livestock biosecurity sites. It is 19 to 1. Hi, I'm Carolina Rodriguez, and I'm from Portugal, and I've been working in uh, Sterling Station, and I'm listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> well, it's an industrial dispute with one of Australia's biggest stevedoring companies is causing congestion and slowdowns at the country's biggest ports. The company DP World and its stevedores have been locked in negotiations over paying condition for months now, causing critical shipping backlogs and delays in the export of produce. Paul Zalai is the director of the Freight and Trade Alliance, and he says this dispute, it is going from bad to worse. The dispute began in October last year with the use of protected industrial action. So it began then, and it was really... um, taking the form of uh, stop work for periods of time, stop servicing perhaps road and rail for small windows, bans on overtime and the like. So initially, the action wasn't too severe on the industry, but, you know, it's almost been like a death of a thousand cuts. It's just been so prolonged that the pain of the protected industrial action has just been building up over the weeks and months that's transpired. And we've got to the point now where I think last Thursday when I spoke to DP World, they had 51,000 containers stranded around the country at their four container ports in in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. And um, the congestion that it's causing there is now having a whole lot of knock-on effects. We've got international uh, shipping vessels now that are making commercial decisions to bypass particular ports that are congested at any given time. And then the impacts then for importers are devastating. They don't get their their stock when they expect it. That's the import side of things. The exports um, have got a lot harder again. And just on that, we've got uh, all sorts of ag goods that are exported out of Australia, lots of perishables, the likes of table grapes to come out of Victoria's Sunraysia. What's happening with those products? Yeah, look, you, you raise a really good point. We're getting we're getting hammered by our members in the ag sector um, across the board. Um, so, in, and it's you know this just does not discriminate. It affects any movement of cargo in in con- sea freight containers. Um, so, you know, we've heard from um, fish meal exporters out of Tasmania being impacted. You know, they've got the situation now where. Um, they're relying on the Port of Melbourne to reach uh, international markets. As you said, the grape growers are really getting hit hard. This is going, to, you know, it's a peak time for them. Uh, they've got an opportunity to get to market. They're, they're facing the issues there at the port. Um, and it goes on. Riverina, we've, we're talking to wine exporters. You know, they've got lucrative markets to the US and other parts of the world where they can't can't reach market. Out of um, central New South Wales, you know, you've got your, your meat exporters, up to Toowoomba, you've got your pulses, you've got your cotton shippers. Everyone is facing the issue. And our good friends in the West, we're talking to grain exporters out of there as well. The problem is severe and it's affecting all sectors of commerce. Paul, from my reading, it seems that there doesn't there doesn't appear to be any end in sight for this dis- dispute. Look, it's getting going from bad to worse, to be honest. So we had this week uh, was meant to be the great hope that we're going to have three days of um, negotiations, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and today, Thursday. Um, 
to try and get a resolution. But the week started pretty badly with um, both DP World and the union making a whole lot of, um, I don't know, volatile statements, I would call it, in, in the media. And DP World threatening that um, if they don't get a resolution now, that come tomorrow, Friday, that any worker that takes any form of protected industrial action will be docked a day's pay that they take that action. So that's starting to bring things to a head. I've read in other media overnight, and and, and I assume it's true, um, that the, the Maritime Union, their response has been to to counter that with threats of um, not servicing any vessel for, for up to 16 hours from the time that it births, and then also not servicing particular targeted shipping lines altogether. So really, if that's if that's true, then you know what will the response be from DP World? I think they may take a drastic action similar to what we saw in the late 1990s where they might do a lockout. Um, and um, and force the Fair Work Commission or the federal government to come in at the 11th hour to do some independent arbitration before before they actually lock out the workers altogether. Paul Zalai, he's a director of the Freight and Trade Alliance, and he was speaking there with Angus Verley. Now, DP World Oceania, the company behind this uh, stevedoring dispute. Uh, its executive vice president, Nikolai Newis, says the company, it wants the federal government to step in and mediate this dispute. The indications are that the actions taken are going to escalate going forward. So um, when we cannot agree and we have this industrial action, there is a broader picture. And, and I think we are asking the government to go in and, and say, look, look, we're looking at this from the side of Australia and, and we are not just urging you to to solve it. When you have proven not to be able to solve it, we will go in and play an active part in mediating this. It doesn't appear very likely, though, that the government will step in. A spokesperson for the Federal Industrial Relations Minister, Tony Burke, has told the ABC the government urges all parties to engage with the Fair Work Commission and find a solution in the best interests of everybody involved. Was there from... Federal Industrial Relations Minister Tony Burke. Uh, the Maritime Union, which is involved in these disputes, has been contacted for comment by the ABC. So, yeah, it's causing some big disruptions at ports right across the country. And lobby group WA Farmers, well, it says the solution to this long-running industrial dispute at the ports is to fully automate them right across the country. CEO Trevor Whittington says plenty of other ports around the world these days are mostly robotic, and it could be done in Australia too. Like they've done in you know, 30 or 40 ports around the world, get the wharfies out of it because we're just lifting boxes off boats and stacking them on the wharf and just you know, go fully automated, fully robotic, and that's you know, we've got the technology to do it. We just need to get there fast. China's building them at the rate of knots. Um, it would be at least double the efficiency, you know, 60, 70, 80 containers an hour, you know, fully controlled by, you know, computers and, and uh, robotics and uh, the cranes work with all the, the technology that we use to run harvesters up and down roads within, you know, a centimetre. There's nothing difficult about this at all, but um, it would at least take this endless round of port disputes that Australia seems to suffer from 
and bring it to an end. Well, I mean, you know, we're talking about taking away jobs here. I mean, surely, you know, people can keep their jobs on the wharf. Uh, the wharf can continue to work. And there must be a solution here. We can come together and actually it, it uh, resolve be, a dispute. It would be cheaper to pay these people to, to just stay at home and not come to work. And we go robotics because the delays in the supply chain of getting, you know, we need fertiliser and chemicals and parts to come through in the ports for seeding. We need to get out our chilled beef and, um, and, and our, our wine and fresh produce, plus everything else we export that goes on containers. And we're losing jobs and Australia's credibility as a manufacturing, you know, exporting nation uh, to keep some very, very highly paid individuals in jobs. And there's no lack of jobs out there in the mining and agricultural sector at the moment. So we can find jobs for these people, but they can't continue to hold Australia and the farmers and the consumers to ransom. So eventually, governments need to muscle up. Now, Albanese shows no interest. And ultimately, the solution is state governments building ports that we don't need unions, union wharfies, you know, doing this endless rounds of going on strike every couple of years to extract more for doing less. I don't they have the right, though, to argue for... Uh, you know, the pay and conditions they yeah, deserve? Knock themselves out. Go, go, for, go for their life. Um, it's a free country. You can be unionised. At the same time, the rest of the community can say enough is enough. We don't want to be held to ransom anymore, so there must be another solution. And there is one in terms of technology. So let's fast track towards that. And these the, the governments and uh, the state government controls the Fremantle port owns it it should be stepping up and we should be hearing from the, uh, this uh, the, from the premier where we're at with the port uh, if they're not going to build the outer harbour why won't they just automate what we've got now so that we're not caught up in and what is a predictable cycle of every two or three years we go through another endless round of disputes. Trevor Whittington, he's CEO of the lobby group WA Farmers, and he was speaking there with Belinda Varaschetti. As I've said, we have contacted the Maritime Union for comment also. G'day, this is Tom Dawkins from the NT Buffalo Industry Council, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Now, this week we've been talking about the federal government's review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct. It's looking at if farmers and consumers are both getting a fair deal from the big supermarkets. This review will be headed up by Labor, former Labor MP Craig Emerson, and he says at the moment, yeah, farmers are not getting a good deal. Our farmers are really arguably the most efficient in the world, and they get low prices, except in times of, you know, um, real scarcity. Um, and you'd think that would be reflected in supermarket prices, but it either isn't at all or it is with a real delay. And so this is about the relationship between uh, farmers and other suppliers to the supermarkets and the supermarkets themselves, as expressed in now a voluntary code of conduct that the supermarkets themselves initiated and came into force in 2015. Can we do better than that? That's really the question. Uh, one option would be a mandatory code of conduct. Um, 
which would be overseen by the competition watchdog, the ACCC. But I'm not saying that's where we're heading. I'm saying let's follow the evidence and come to our conclusion. Now, I know the Greens were calling for an inquiry, which is also something that I think both sets of of farmers associations would like to see, rather than a review. Why can't we just cut cut to the inquiry now rather than a review and then maybe seeing if we want an inquiry? Because the ACCC well, already has yeah. the power to investigate and coerce yes, evidence. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't want to do – I think that wouldn't do justice to the whole exercise. Just say, okay, well, um, the review is one day old. Um, on the second day, this is the outcome. Firstly, it wouldn't be very credible. People say, well, what evidence do you look at in that 24 hours? There is already an inquiry in the Senate, a Senate inquiry, I think, one of the Green Senator Nick McKim is involved in that, and that's the relationship between um, customers of supermarkets and the supermarkets themselves. But this one is really about the relationship between the suppliers and the supermarkets. Um, as I said, the, the supermarkets initiated a grocery uh, code of conduct, it was, but it is voluntary. I mean, I acknowledge that they did that. It was under a lot of pressure under the previous government, but it never was made mandatory. And as as you and I are discussing, that is one of the options. Craig Emerson, he's heading up this review into the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, and he was speaking there with Suzanne Hill. It's just about time to head to the 1 o'clock newsroom. Up after that, we will be speaking with the Weather Bureau. If you've got any questions for the weather, please send them through on 0487 Double nine one zero five seven. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon, Dan Fitzgerald is my name, and thanks a lot for joining me for the Country Hour. If you're listening on ABC Radio Darwin, might be Channel 25 on your telly or via the ABC Listen app where you can both listen to us live or you can catch us on the podcast at the time of your choosing. Uh, Still to come in the next 25 minutes, we're going to be crossing over to Germany to find out why thousands of farmers there have been driving their tractors down the main street of Berlin and causing all sorts of trouble. We'll speak about that soon. Uh, But right now, let's head to the Weather Bureau where we've got Billy Lynch on deck today. How are you, Billy? G'day, I'm good. Thanks, Dan. That's the way. Um, Let's, first of all, uh, let's talk about some rainfall figures overnight. Uh, What were some of the larger falls you've seen? Yeah, so it's all been across the northern half of the Territory. Um, I guess we've seen scattered falls of 20 to 50 millimetres, but uh, the higher totals have been just south of Catherine, um, where Delamere's picked up 106 and Dry River 108, and then Maud Creek 97. So they're probably the better ones. And then I guess Daily Waters 84 is pretty good as well. Yeah, there's some good totals um, from some other figures that I've seen on stations reporting on Facebook. Uh, Banjo Station said it had 161 millimetres. Uh, nearby Avago had 130, uh, another 87 millimetres at Western Creek and 79 at Tarley. So these are all on the Sturt Plateau, sort of to the south of Catherine, a bit to the west of Larimer. So some good storms went through there. And 
is it much the same today, Billy? There looks uh, on the weather radar. There's um, storms right across the top end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, much the same. Uh, if anything, I guess we're just seeing that the monsoon um, strengthen and, and become a little bit more widespread across the top end today. So seeing some good monsoonal showers and storms move on to the, the sort of northern Arnhem district and even around the Darwin region. This morning it was quite heavy where Howard Springs is... This is just since 9am, 35mm, um, 48 at Nucky's Lagoon and 58 at East Point. So, yeah, look, the, the monsoon's just kind of winding up and uh, going to deliver more, more rain um, across the, the top end today. And for the next few days, just how widespread uh, could this heavy rainfall be? Yeah, so um, it's definitely going to continue to strengthen the monsoon. So, yeah, the rain um, widespread you know, right across the the top end and, and getting down into the, the northern Barclay district as well. Um, so that's in terms of how widespread, sort of down, you know, to around Elliott's uh, or uh, Renner Springs kind of way. Um, but the, the main focus is going to be around... Uh, the tropical low, which is sort of forming near the, the west coast of the, the top end at the moment. Um, so as that low deepens during the next couple of days, um, it, that sort of a surrounding region across the, the, the daily and the, the Vic River sort of catchments is, is where the, the heaviest rainfall is likely to uh, develop and, and, and the heavier totals are, are expected. And there's also um, another weather system off um, the coast of North Queensland as well. How, is that going to influence things here in the Territory? Um, it shouldn't. I mean, I think that weather system you're referring to is just the, the general monsoon, um, which is extending across far North Queensland as well. And then there's also the potential for another tropical low to uh, develop in the Gulf of Carpentaria, which um, may either be slow-moving or move towards North Queensland. So, yeah, there are just sort of some other developments happening across northern Australia with the monsoon, but um, less likely to impact us. Our main focus is sort of around this tropical low near the, the Timor Sea and what that might do over the next few days. Yeah, okay. And the chance of a tropical cyclone developing out of this low, what are, what are things looking like? Yeah, I mean, the risk is still there. Um, it's it's really just a, a fine balance as to how long the low can spend over water, just given that it's forming near the coast. Um, so what we're saying is sort of from, from tomorrow, you know, it, there's a, a low risk that it could develop because uh, it's a small system and so it could develop quickly. So, uh, look, we're saying there's about a 10% risk of it developing into a cyclone tomorrow and Saturday, uh, a moderate risk from Sunday, um, but from Monday, it, it's more likely to be sort of moved inland from the coast and, and the risk decreasing. So, um, yeah, just something, I guess, for people in that region to be aware of, that, that there is a risk that the cyclone will develop, but it's more likely it won't, and it will just bring some heavy sort of monsoonal weather. Yep, OK. Uh, we've had a text through here on 0487991057 uh, for Darren. He wants to know if there's any chance of Saturday being fine. Uh, he says he's got an excavator booked. Um, Darren hasn't actually said where he's from, but um, if Darren sounds like if he's anywhere in the top end, um, it's not going to be fine. <laughs> no, if he's anywhere in the top end, I mean, he might get brief periods where it's fine, but for the most part, 
there's going to be these monsoonal showers um, coming through quite constantly and um, depending exactly where he is that could be quite heavy as well yeah okay and for Alice Springs and Central Australia a hot few days ahead yeah, definitely. Um, just a risk of some isolated storms across the, the southern Barkley and the, the northeast Simpson today, sort of around your voice, but generally mostly sunny and, yeah, hot. So temperatures in the, the high 30s or the low 40s. Um, tomorrow there's a risk that those isolated thunderstorms move towards Alice Springs, um, but it's not going to bring much relief from the heat, so um, temperatures expected to be sort of around that 40-degree mark across southern NT for probably the next seven days or so. Yep, okay. Um, well, Darren's just texted back in. He says he's in Darwin, so... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be wet. It's going to be afraid. wet, Darren. <laughs> All righty, thanks for the update, Billy. No worries, thanks, Dan. Uh, it's Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. It is 12 past one. The ABC Emergency website features a handy guide to help you deal with a loss of power, mobile phone and internet access. During an emergency, that might not be much help to you. So, while you still have power and data, go to ABC Emergency. Being prepared can help you cope when you find yourself in an emergency situation. Make sure you have a battery-powered radio tuned to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. I'm Cameron Berryman from Wild Barra Fisheries. We've got vessels fishing all over the northern waters bringing in wild-caught barramundi. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, you might have seen online or on your telly images of tractors packed in front of the famous Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. German farmers... They've been out protesting over the last few weeks and thousands of tractors have been blocking roads, highways right across the country. And these farmers are all protesting proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. Uh, They're part of some budget plans there in Germany that include uh, changes to diesel taxes and vehicle tax exemptions for farmers. Uh, Daniel Jung is a young vegetable farmer in southern Germany and he says, well, farmers in that country, they're pretty angry at the moment. Farmers are currently in the street protesting because our government, they have the highest tax income since the history in Germany. But on the other hand, also the highest cash outcome in our government. That's why they have a lack of cash. And now they are searching for some opportunities to fix that hole in their household plan. And now they had the, the idea to uh, remove some subsidies, for example, for fuel for their farmers. And also the the tax for the tractors was in the past for free. And now they want to change it to uh, every truck, every car. So we, we, we should also start to go pay taxes for that. Now, with those proposed subsidies for farmers, what would they mean for you as a farmer if they were to come in place? For me as a farmer, it would be a between 50,000 and 80,000 euros per year less income. And that's a huge amount for me and my family. And not only for me, also for the, all the other farmers. They are really angry at the moment because they, yesterday they decided to quit the subsidy for the fuel. Not from today to tomorrow in some steps, but that's why the farmers are getting angry now. And but I think yesterday was a big protest 
action uh, in uh, in the whole Germany, and there were about 100,000 tractors on the streets. They blocked the highway, for example, or the big cities. How did the public and the government react to those protests? The public reacted with good feelings, and they they were happy <laughs> that the farmers are on the street, really, and they supported us. But the government in Berlin, they said, nothing will change. It's our plans. We quit these subsidies, and it doesn't matter what you're doing on the streets. But uh, on the other hand, we had some politicals yesterday from, uh, for example, Rheinland-Pfalz. That's the area in Germany. There, the, the president there of this area, uh, she told also, hey, stop the quitting. Let it. Let the old system run and search for another opportunities to, fi to found some money. Now, the government did make some concessions. And instead of cutting subsidies immediately, for example, on fuel, they now slowly phase it out. And it, there will be no more subsidies by 2026. Given that concession, how did farmers feel about that? They're feeling really angry, to be honest, really, really angry. Because the subsidy for the fuel, for example, is something that everyone has to pay. When, when you go to a gas station and fill up your, your tractor or truck or car, you have to pay the normal price on the fuel station. And the farmers get in Germany 21.48 cents per liter back because this is the tax to uh, rebuild and renew the streets and the highway. And with this reason, uh, the farmers get it back because they don't use the highway or the streets so much. The tractor normally drives on the field and don't destroy some streets. That's the reason why they found it in the past and now the farmers getting really angry because they quit it. Given the cuts in subsidies by the government, what does that mean for consumers buying your agricultural product and also for produce that might be imported to Germany? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because for me and at my farm with the vegetables, I can, I can po postpone this amount to the customer I have to. But my other colleagues, for example, a typical grain farmer or a cattle farmer, they are delivery or they, they supply some big companies or directly to the to the customer in the supermarket, and then they don't have that power to uh, enlarge the prices so easily. So uh, they have to pay it by their own. So this is some money they're missing at the end of the year. What are farmers aiming to achieve? We're aiming to achieve that all the subsidy cutting stops immediately and yeah that's the main part and i think all the other the other reasons why they're protesting this is something on the, the level of uh, europe we, we can't influence that so much like we want to daniel jung he's a vegetable farmer in southern germany and he was speaking there with jessica schremer it is 18 past one here on the country hour my name's dan fitzgerald you're on abc radio and the northern territory we're also available to listen via the ABC Listen app, download it on your phone. You can listen to us live or via the podcast there at the time of your choosing. Let's check in, check in on the Magic Millions yearling sale now, which is on day three and has already grossed more than $105 million. More than a dozen horses have passed the million-dollar mark and one's even sold for more than $2 million at this horse sale on the Gold Coast. And it's been a big week for the Hunter Valley's Yarraman Park stud. A manager there, Arthur Mitchell, he told Amelia Bernasconi, it's had a very good start to the sale. We had a good 
very good colt and a very good filly up early, and they both sold well. They were both really nice horses, so um, all the big buyers are here. It's been a good start to the sale. Were you nervous having those two two lots with, with quite a lot of eyes on them, but so early on when this, the catalogue is, I think it's its biggest ever this year? Yes, it's a big catalogue. We, 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 we were nervous, but they were very... They, they were very nice horses, so they were sort of two of our very best at the sale. So we were pretty happy to get them done and away. So, um, but yeah, no, we were a little bit nervous, but what it's the way it draws. It's alphabetical, so that's what happens. Tell me a bit more about um, you know that that Colton filly that sold yesterday, um, particularly the the filly. I think there was a lot of interest there too, wasn't there? That Outback Barbie. Well, the filly was a, 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 a very emotional story because Outback Barbie was a very good racehorse and raced by um, uh, the Acton family here in Queensland, big cattle family, and he got killed in his helicopter last year. So emotionally for the family, they um, they sold the filly. I think they retained a bit, but it was a an emotional roller coaster seeing that um, you know um, Mr. Acton had died. It, it does become quite an emotional time there, and, and you know those stories, I suppose, are um, you know even more heightened. But when you're putting so much work into these animals, and I suppose I'm invincible always draws such a huge crowd, and he stands with you um, back home. And uh, that colt you sold yesterday was by him. So, yeah, the I'm invincible lines—they continuing that uh, interest. Oh my gosh, there's a lot more to sell here. Yes, he's got a long way to go. Not not just from us, from a lot of different people. There's some nice horses here. So, you know, he's sort of the the dominant sire at the moment. So I don't know mm. how long it will last, but it's lasting at the moment. It seems so, like it's lasted a long time so far. We'll, well see. Well, it does, doesn't it? He is 19 now. He's 20 this year. So, yes, he's um, he is getting on a bit. And I'm sure you've got lots more uh, to sell over the next few days. Are you in the buying market as well? Is there any that you've got uh, your eye on? We haven't, no, nothing really. We're mainly selling here. We're too sort of busy to try to buy because we're, we're too busy trying to get them all sold. We've got 36 mm. yearlings here, so we're just bigger than what we normally have, so we're actually quite busy. You know, it's, um, you can't take your eye off the ball. Arthur Mitchell, he's a manager of the Yarraman Park Stud there about the ongoing Magic Millions yearling sale already grossed over the last three days, $105 million. That is some crazy money there. It is 21 past one here on the Country Hour. Time now for a tune. Up after this, uh, we're going to be talking about the efforts underway to try to find and learn a bit more about a very special chunky skink in the Northern Territory. Before July. Paul Kelly there with Before Too Long. This is the Country Hour, and I'm Dan Fitzgerald. Thanks a lot for joining me. There's a rare and quite special skink in the Northern Territory that there still remains very few records of, but one research project found has been looking at this endangered Arnhem Land rock skink. Uh, Victoria Ellis, she spoke to researcher Emily Hoffman about what this elusive lizard looks like and just why we should care about it. Most people really like to describe it as a chunky skink, so they're really quite large, so think more like a northern blue tongue lizard rather than a small skink you might have scurrying around your backyard. Um, so they're quite large, you know, think their body size is about 20 centimetres, so including their tail could reach up to 50 centimetres, and they're brown with this beautiful sort of black and white barring sometimes around the chin, so really beautiful and quite unlike any other skinks you'll find in the area. Whereabouts are they in Arnhem Land? 
So they're only found, as far as we know um, at present, along the western edge of the Arnhem Escarpment. So that's the only place in the world that you can find these skinks. Why are they so special and why should we care about conservation? Look, that's a great question. I feel like as a sort of a threatened species researcher, that's something we get asked a lot. And... I mean, it's really hard to say when you've got a handful of records of a species, you know, it's really hard to even sometimes understand their niche. Like, what, where do they belong in an ecosystem and those kind of things? And, I mean, there's, I think, an inherent just need to um, at least understand where things are at, where, where they occur, how are they doing before um, we can actually do anything about them. And um, so, so at least knowing that they're there is such an important first step. And each sort of I guess species has a role to play in an ecosystem and you know these species once they're gone they're gone forever you know it's hard to to go back in time and say oh could that have had some you know important biological role um, or engineering role in an ecosystem or there could be some kind of you know from a selfish perspective could we have got some kind of chemical from that uh, plant or animal that could have benefited us but really I think where it connects with me the most is that if animals are declining in the landscape or plants are declining in the landscape, that tells me that something is changing in the landscape. And so for me, it's, they're telling us a story about what's happening that we might not be aware of. So I think they're kind of like our indicators and we can use that to be like, hey, something's changing. What is that? And, and should we check in with that? Is that something that we need to worry about, not just for protecting them, but also for ourselves protecting, uh, you know, and looking after our environment? Could you explain the trends in population and location of those populations? I can't because we don't know. That's, that's just it. I think that's, it seems like a really basic thing to understand, but we knew so little about this skink species that we didn't actually know where it occurred. So we were really asking that sort of exploratory question of like, oh, there is a handful of records. Do they still persist at those places? That was sort of step one because we had, you know, we knew that they did at least at some point in time occur there. Um, so hopefully by developing some new monitoring methods with a bit more confidence that we can actually find them in the landscape. So that was the challenge we were really trying to tackle. You could go back there now with more confidence or search areas and say, okay, do they occur here or not? And maybe we can also start to try and track their population trends. So get an idea of, okay, are they actually contracting and declining from some areas where there is some indication from from our surveys? So what would you like to see happen next in terms of further research into the skinks? I'd love to see some more funding in this space. So I think funding for just getting monitoring methods and so we can properly monitor species and understand what's happening with them is such an important baseline so that we can start to answer questions around what are their trends like you were asking before about what are their population trends that's a great question and also understanding more about their threats and how they interact what are the requirements that they have in the environment so that we can better conserve them uh, and manage them moving forward so more baseline funding I think is really important um, and pivotal before you can do other actions. Emily Hoffman, she's a researcher and she's been looking at this endangered Arnhem rock skink. As you heard there, she also calls it the chunky skink. She was speaking there to Victoria Ellis. That's it for the Country Hour for this Thursday. If you're across the top end, I hope you're getting some rain. If you need it, there is plenty about and there'll be plenty more over the next few days. And the Country Hour will be back on your radio and your podcast tomorrow. Take it easy.